when you're working with your hands, when you have a bad idea, it hurts. When you're working with digital content and it's a bad idea, it's not immediately clear what the damage is. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. I think it's become very apparent to most people, Nathan, that discerning between information and misinformation is going to be a very important skill set for the future and actually now. <laughs> already has, yeah. So, yeah, it's already an issue. So there was an article in, on the Front Porch Republic. We'll link it in the show notes that talked about this and I thought offered some insight, but also was a bit of a strange experience for me to read. Because you see, Nathan, I'm a little bit of a symptom of the problem this gentleman <laughs> is describing. So he is a woodworker by trade and his his names, I'll get his name in a second here. It's escaping me for the moment. I'll pull it up in just a moment. But he is he's a woodworker by training and also an intellectual. So you might say he's a blue collar intellectual kind of guy. Mm -hmm. But he argues that and he he looks he looks at the history of in, basically in pedagogical theory of where this this notion comes from. But basically shop class working with your hands was proposed by a number of different people as a very important part of teaching children because it grounds them in reality, forces them to be harnessed to pr certain practical realities, and then it sets them up to handle theoretical knowledge better. But it also helps them to have this bank of experience that they can use to judge whether something's true or not. So in other words, mm -hmm. working with your hands aids you in discernment. And I thought that was very interesting. And it also made me think immediately of you. So I thought we would talk a little bit <laughs> well, about that and some of the <laughs> some of the habits that have taken place in our educational system and just the way young people think. I also think of our friend Jonathan Brush. I think he would have a lot to say on this subject as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's that's great that you're pointing out to everybody that Cameron picked this topic, not me, because it does seem like one that I would um, pick up. But the, the chair yeah, so for I think, Nathan, <laughs> right, right, the. It's interesting that you say you're you're a bit of a symptom of that, and I want to push into that and think through it a little bit more. I hadn't really thought about the uniqueness of my situation until we were talking to one of our friends um, one day, and I said, you know, when I was eight years old, my parents bought a toolbox for me for my birthday, like a literal. It's I still have it. It's red, mm -hmm. a red metal toolbox. And then for every single birthday and Christmas from the time I was eight until I left for college, and then even then. Both sets of grandparents and my parents all always gave me a book and a tool. Those were the gifts that I got every single birthday and Christmas. So books and tools were the 97% of the gifts that I can remember. And our friend's like, oh, and you're surprised at how you turned out. Um, <laughs> it seems like you're sort of set up for that. But I thought, you know, that actually is an interesting thing that kind of matches both of those um, how do you use your hands and then how do you engage with big ideas? Um, and so, yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that as a unique thing. I mean, obviously I thought that was normal, but you're holding kind of a mirror up, I guess, of saying, actually, there's another way to do childhood that, um, creates, but you know, when you're saying about like discerning what's real, um, so I have a four-year-old who frequently, if he sees something on a screen will turn to me and say, is this in the real world? <laughs> 
So if it's, sure, um, yeah. you know, a lion chasing a zebra on a animal documentary, mm-hmm. you say, yeah, that is. Um, if it's Lightning McQueen, it's not. But he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't know that there's not some place in the world where there aren't animated cars that, you know, talk. Um, and so he's trying to to figure that out. And so he's kind of looking to me as that reference point of like, is this in the real world? Is It's, it's funny when you hear a four-year-old ask that, but actually technology has advanced to the place that now 44 year olds need to be able to, to discern and ask those questions. So I I think it's a very live uh, conversation um, that you're bringing to the forefront here. Yeah. I mean, and I think about the limitations of my hands and in my own, my own background. So you, those gifts, Nathan, the, the phrase that springs to mind when I hear about that is head and hands, your Christmas gifts were head and hands gifts. And what a balance you have there. I was born into a family where we just, <laughs> I, I don't have a foundation for fixing things and for working with my hands. Now, I was taught discernment and I was taught discernment well, I believe, by my parents, but it didn't come through woodworking or household projects or fixing things. And so I feel a very real lack there. And now it's not too late to learn. So that's 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 true. And there are some areas, perhaps the one area of real, I mean, athletics fits in here too. Sports mm-hmm. can fit in here mm-hmm. as well because you're learning about physical limitations. You're learning about teamwork. You're learning about all those kinds of things. The two pursuits there that would maybe be the closest to something along these lines to the to the woodshop, so to speak, would mm-hmm. be playing music with with other groups of people. I play an instrument. And then I suppose the gym as well. Those those are two great arenas for testing reality. But yes, I in many ways I I can feel my education. Lot, lots of it could run the risk of looking very theoretical rather okay, than but, practical. But the, so but the argument could be made that you have the better setup for the twenty first century, in the sense that you can take a film apart, like digital media. You you form discerning and accurate judgments about that way faster than I do. Um, if you pop the hood on your car, I can figure out what's wrong faster than you can. But if we were to look at a film and say, yep. what are the main meta narratives here? Which philosophies are they playing off of? Which parts of this are dangerous and which ones are okay to laugh at? You don't even have to think about that. You just know it. So I wouldn't say, um, no, I'm I'm perfectly <laughs> in some ways content the way that I am, but I would say I, I don't know that it's a deficit. If we're living in a technologically advanced digital age, your skill set is extremely valuable, the gift that your parents gave you too. And we don't want to make it an either well, sure. or. And I mean, I think yeah. right. No, and I, I think so. What I think is is very right is that we need to we've got to work. It would probably be very beneficial if we recovered shop class, so to speak, in the broader sense of the term. There was that book that came out a while ago. I think shop class is soul craft. It's very helpful as well. And it it mounts a very similar argument. But especially with younger, younger, with kids. Kids in particular, because the tendency. Yeah, it's Matt. Yeah, that's Matthew Crawford. Yes. And Matthew Crawford, by the way, is a fan of this guy (laughs) who who wrote this Front Porch Republic article. Yeah. But we're not. We're st- we just still don't have his name yet. But we've got somebody who's a fan of his, who is famous. So there you go. That's it's almost. We're, we're you know we're working our our way there by degrees. But kids, kids these days, but kids these days are often kind of we 
the temptation is to placate them with technology in some way, mm-hmm. which is a purely passive thing. Now, I get why people do it. It's, it's for a break. If you're trying to follow a schedule, it's, I mean, it's the easy thing to do. But something that is more active, I mean, this is why with our kids, we do, we do try to keep them to the best of our abilities outside, actually doing things with their hands. And, you know, as much this, this backfires on me sometimes because Dylan will perform what he calls experiments, which usually translates to damage to my property in some way, <laughs> shape or form. Yeah. But at the, but this and it often does. But at the same time, I don't want to come down too hard on him because I mean, you know, obviously you got to honor the rules of the house, kid. But there, I I like his inquisitive spirit and the fact that he's he is exploring and he's trying to figure things out. And one thing that I've noticed, and this is, it's going to be different depending on your child. Both of my children are very different. Nathan, you have four. I'm. They all have very distinct personalities. But for Dylan, he's offended if I tell him. This is a really neat game you're playing. I'm not playing anything. It's very important to him that I understand right. that the undertaking is very serious and that his intentions are to test reality. And so that's where he, he's just very different from me there because I was a very imaginative mm-hmm. kid and I wanted to, I was, I was happy to, you know, go off into far, far off regions in my mind, but Dylan wants to understand what's here and around him. Mm-hmm. So that's been a fun and interesting challenge. There's always, if ever I've, I'm trying to float away, Dylan's tugging on my sleeve, trying to pull me back, back down to earth, here, so to speak. Well, well, there's, I was, um, very few of us listening, very few of you listening to this podcast have 87 year old memories, but I was talking to my grandfather who's 92 and he can distinctly remember when he was five years old, climbing up really, really high in the top of a tree and he could hear his parents talking. And his mom said to his dad, hey, you should probably holler up to him and tell him to come down. And he heard his dad say, I would rather him fall and break his arm than grow up being afraid to climb. Now, Mm. what's interesting about that is that would now be considered negligence as a parent, (laughs) basically. So, 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 so safety here becomes a feature of how do you, how do you, it's like the way that a vaccination works. Like how do you expose somebody to enough of something that they know how to handle it without it killing them? And that basically is the, the crux of parenting, I guess is, is is like, how do you find that, Mm -hmm. that line and that limit? Because let's face it. I bled a lot as a child because of the childhood that I, I, I can tell you all sorts of fascinating ways in which, in fact, when I was a kid, my mom came around to tuck us in at night and pray for us and brought band-aids and peroxide. Like that was part of her bedtime prayer routine was to doctor wounds. Like it was just assumed that one of her children was bleeding. Um, and (laughs) and, I mean, not like mortally wounded, but you stepped on a thorn barefoot or smashed your finger, hammering rocks together or something. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so there's that sense of you, you have to be adventurous and vulnerable to, to learn how the world works but obviously you can do serious damage to yourself as well. Um, th- we're just living in a time in which that line of like, where is it dangerous is usually drawn way farther back than where the line actually is. So that's helpful. But this, this brings mm-hmm. me into this idea of, cause where we started was discerning truth, like in a digital age. And, and the thing is, is that when you're working with your hands, 
when you have a bad idea, it hurts. When you're working with digital content mm -hmm. and it's a bad idea, it's not immediately clear what the damage is. So I think that's the, the challenging thing here is like, oh, maybe there's a long-term mental health um, damage that comes from too much social media engagement. Well, you don't immediately know that the same way as when you slip a wrench off something and punch the engine block and your knuckles are bleeding. Like sure. there's a very immediate like, oh, let's try not to do that again kind of thing when you're working with your hands that helps you quickly shape some form of, um, I, I guess maybe the, the learning speed on what's a bad idea yep. is just so much faster in the physical world. Well, I mean, if you think against the grain of the universe, you're not going to feel the immediate pain. But if you feel against the grain of the universe <laughs> with your hands, you will feel the immediate pain. So there's an important, very basic lesson on just the limitations and the boundaries of reality itself. You run into reality much more tangibly. So that leads me to a question, though, and I'm going to frame this in very distinctly kind of TOL terms. On the one hand, why is it that we're, we're bad at discerning information and misinformation? And two, is this really anything new? I mean, if you look back at the history of propaganda, I mean, even in the modern world, we look at, you can, to take one really egregious example, we can look at the propaganda that, that appeared in the Third Reich that was very effective in mobilizing people into ir irrational hatred of the Jews that stoked the, the flames of anti-Semitism. You could think about some of the the race, I mean, racism is, is a very clear example to point to. So you can point to that, the propaganda that appeared in North America as well. But so misinformation, of course, is, is part of our struggle as human beings. But what's what is what's changed so dramatically recently? We've, I mean, we've been in a digital kind of age for a little while, too. What's ramping this up? Okay, two things, I think. This is me just shooting from the from the lip here. So the first one is, is sure. I think the rise of the algorithm that is suggesting content to you. So basically, you're more susceptible to believing what you see on a screen because you didn't choose to see that it was curated for you. And the algorithm algorithm knows what you're looking for. So you're you're being shown what mm. you want to be true. And, and that I mean, there's all kinds of theories on this yeah. as far as like how mainstream media works is like you will gravitate toward the version of the media that tells you the world is scary in the categories that you already believe the world is scary in. So so mm -hmm. you, you think I'm getting news, but what you're actually getting is a reaffirmation of the things you're already worried about that's being cultivated for you. So that's at play here. This idea of intent precedes content. Like what you're looking for is often what you end up finding. I could go all the way back to like somebody famous once said, seeking you shall find um but then the second part of this is just the phenomenal <laughs> proliferation of when you do live in a digital world and then your digital technology gets to be pretty good at replicating human-esque things digitally mm -hmm. i mean when we were in fourth grade cameron it was very obvious what a computer generated picture was <laughs> at like 100 pixels yes. like it was yeah, sure. i mean it was ridiculous um mm -hmm. uh and now we're just in a totally different world. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's so, so the technology has improved faster than our ability to discern has. 
those would be the two main yeah. things that I see. And I think I think that's good. I mean, so often my mind goes to the sorcerer's apprentice <laughs> story where something just gets completely out of control. Or, or, of course, the other one, you know, the modern Prometheus, Frankenstein. But, yeah, so the, the rate of acceleration of these technologies rattles some of the names off, you know, deep fake stuff or AI. So you have increasing levels of sophistication in in stuff that is that's that can deceive you. And let's just face it. You don't have to be, I mean, you're hardly a pessimistic or cynical person to say, of course, this stuff is going to be misused. Of course, it's going to be used in highly manipulative, coercive ways. I mean, human nature being what it is, I mean, yes, it will be used as, as a helpful tool sometimes too. But of course, you, we're going to, so we're going to face some very serious problems because of a higher level of sophistication. But back to what you said earlier, we're predisposed to be less discerning. Because for a long time, and sociologists have been looking at this for a while, Oz Guinness talks about moving away from an era of authority to one of personal preference. Mm -hmm. That personal preference has been pushed so, so far that we're, we, you're going beyond confirmation bias. You're going to a place where you mentioned algorithms that carefully curate stuff based on your preferences. Well, that obviously is going to have a drastic effect on your view of reality. And I can I can pull a little story here. There's so everybody in the story shall remain nameless, but there were there was a certain conservative social media site. It still exists today. And on this site, it was suggesting that a famous actor, you know, big big in Hollywood circles, all of that famous actor who's known to be very progressive, was in fact not progressive at all. It was actually very conservative. And some people who I knew were excited, very excited, and said, did you know so-and-so is actually a conservative? And I looked at them and I said, now this is also a difference between somebody who would be classed as a digital native mm -hmm. and somebody who's a little bit older. These people were a little bit older. So that's a, that's a salient factor here. They're not stupid. They're smart. They've they've done really well for themselves. So that's the other thing. Where I'm talking about intelligent, upstanding citizens, not irresponsible people who just read tabloids and believe in Bat Boy. But they were firmly convinced that this actor was actually not a progressive, but was actually hyper-conservative. In fact, this actor is not. And this was cooked up purely on this site and had bore no resemblance to reality. What it did do, though, was give them huge wish fulfillment because in their sort right. of culture warring mm -hmm. mindset they saw it as a huge victory to have this person on our team after all never mind that it wasn't true and even a just a basic google search a tiny little bit of fact check checking could disabuse you <laughs> of the notion that this person was was a conservative that's one small example of the kind of thing that happens all the time and that's not so much yeah, I mean, now add to that the difficulty of increasingly sophisticated forms of deception. That's a big problem. But my point there is that you, personal preference is such a strong driving force there. And again, to go back to what you said earlier, Nathan, if you're in, if you're working with wood or outside or something and you do something wrong, you're going to feel some immediate physical pain in a way that you don't there. So if I wasn't talking to them, these people could go about their merry way thinking this thing that's completely out of touch with reality 
So some interesting, yeah, just yeah. some observations on mm -hmm. what personal preference has done to us. There, there's also something that happens in the digital world that doesn't in the physical world, which is do-overs. So you get killed in the video game and you respawn somewhere and onward you go. Um, I was talking to our, the guy who teaches shop, the, the woodworking, the intro to woodworking at our local high school. And, and the first, first project he has them do is make a perfect cube. So they have to make a cube out of mm, wood, okay. cut it down to an actual cube and then sand it down. And so he's looking for them to make the perfect cube, which is a look with hand tools. So no power tools. So build a perfect cube with hand tools. Got it. Um, which is a little trickier than you would think just right off the cuff to, to get that to work out. Um, but the thing of it is, if you're 99% of the way done and mess that up, you've got to back way up and start over. Or, or think even in the days of a typewriter and you hit the wrong key. You back up, white sure. out, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. I didn't do a whole lot of typewriter work, but I think that's how that worked. I mean, just think about the, the fluid way that we can manipulate text and images is a mm -hmm. phenomenal gift. But the fact that we can fix mistakes so fast means that I think we can be a little, um, well, I confess that. Like if I'm type, like say I want to type a paragraph out of a book into a talk or something and I'm typing, I'm going to be typing, I don't know how many words a minute, but I'm getting on it because I don't really care if I, you know, have a missed keystroke because it's going to get underlined for me and I'll go back and fix it. Like, so there, there are ways in which there's a, a lesser degree of seriousness with the work that we do digitally because the the capacity to fix it is so much easier than when you're working with a physical medium. You know, we should probably back up for just one second. It occurs to me we haven't really defined discernment, which is a really important word. So mm. maybe just let's do a I'll do a quick just crash course here on what I mean by that word. In certain Christian circles, this word can have almost mystical connotations. People will say discernment, and they really mean kind of a spiritual vision that allows you to, you know, they're talking about spiritual warfare, that kind of thing. I'm not meaning it like that. I'm speaking in a much more kind of basic sense. And it's etymology. And I've said this before on the podcast. So this is just, this is a, re a repeat reminder, but it's helpful. Discernment, if you break it down into, you know, the origin, if you look at the origins of the word, it's two two things. It's on the one hand, it's penetrating insight. So to be able to see into the heart of a given matter. And then on the other, it's discrimination. Not in a bad way, mm -hmm. meaning you're able to say this thing is this and it is not this. So you can make those fine distinctions. That's that's what discernment actually is. So the ability to have that insight, but also to make those important distinctions. Yeah, I think it's just yep. it's helpful that if we have that in our well, let's go with that because think about you have said that before, and I think that's helpful. Hey, free refills. Um, but the because it's a really good definition. Um, but let's let's think through. Let's put some boots on the ground here with this idea, because there's a phenomenal amount of stuff that you see in a day that yep. that the thing itself doesn't require discernment because it actually doesn't functionally matter whether or not it's true, like. Um, Sure. Oh, yeah. You, this you is could important. ask AI, yeah, yeah. What, what what was the date when Miley Cyrus licked Taylor Swift? I don't know if that ever happened, but, you know, like, okay, mm -hmm. whether or not that's ever true, like, I it doesn't matter. Cameron's going to place a bet on yes. Um, I have no idea. I'm just happy I could think of two popular or used to be popular singers. I'm not sure where we're at. But, like, it, it kind of doesn't matter. The, the, so the, the vast mm -hmm. majority of the things that we consume digitally 
we conceive as entertainment, not as education. And so we aren't using, like, we don't, like, I am now going to shift into discernment gear to think about this. You know what I mean? Like we we tell ourselves that we're not being I shaped do. and formed it's, by our vision by our digital content, and if we saw it as a form of discipleship rather than as and and yeah. catechesis as it actually is, then that would be pretty different. Um, yeah, because you were saying something about filters early at the beginning, and I think this fits in there. Well, so it's interesting in the in the digital realm, or let's just say entertainment. So in the area of entertainment, this is where my parents really excelled, by the way. So if it sounded at first like I was lodging a formal complaint and about to drag my parents onto a talk show and complain about <laughs> about them, <laughs> yeah. here's where I want <laughs> I want to assure you that I'm honoring my my parents. Mm. So there will there will be moments where a lot of what we we take take in, it's true, doesn't require careful discernment all the time. There are plenty of so Here's a case in point. You're driving your car from point A to point B. Dallas Willard used to always point out, you don't want to drive with somebody who thinks about every maneuver. That's not a good driver. Mm -hmm. It needs to be seamless. And there are plenty of activities that we do that are that are seamless. When I ma I've made coffee so many times in my life, I'm not even thinking about it when I'm doing it. But when we slip into that habit, sometimes when we're being entertained, that's when some helpful training can can come into play. So, for instance, when I was a kid, when we would watch sitcoms, let's say Friends or something like that, or The Office or New Girl or something like that, my dad was very good. I called this apocalyptic realism because that's just as cumbersome a phrase as I could come up with. But he would part <laughs> the curtain in certain points to show us what's actually going on in a show. So, if there, you know, you're laughing, you're laughing along back, back then they used to have the laugh track, you're laughing along with the laugh track, but all of a sudden there will come moments where the show pivots away from just pure entertainment to a lesson, a moral lesson. And my dad, without being a killjoy, was really good at saying, okay, look, now you're getting a picture of this is the vision of this show's creators of what the good life is. And usually with most of these shows, it turned on except unconditional acceptance of the of everything the person does if you care about them mm -hmm. and there were numerous examples of that we've pointed off into the thanksgiving episodes any kind of a holiday episode of a t of a tv show will usually have some moral lesson in it now and that's not by the way so some of these lessons today we can look at and we can be a little bit wary because a lot of them are progressive in nature it's true but if you look back to even something like the Peanuts Christmas special, you know, all those Charlie Browns, those also had moral lessons in them. They they were a little bit more traditional in terms of their sense of right and wrong and how human beings ought to behave. But they were still moral lessons. But my point is, if you're passive, you're just accepting everything that's coming your way and you're taking it all in, which many people do, especially young and you know, impressionable viewers do this also. So I think it's important even in moments. So my point here is there are moments where you're not always, you know, trying to gain insight into the heart of the matter and, you know, you know, trying to discriminate between what something is and what it isn't. But it's surprising how often you actually should be doing that, because if you're not, what will happen is you're just you're you're passively accepting a view of life, a view of humanity often that's being spoon fed to you. 
And so I think there are t- there are moments where I mean, we and I'm not recommending a constant attitude of paranoia and suspicion. The word I would use is vigilance. That's mm-hmm. a way better word. That's a that's a word that's way more in line with what Peter is telling us in his epistles about being spiritually vigilant, being aware that yes, you are you're getting all the time competing visions of the good life, competing visions of reality. And so it's learning to a key part of discernment in a lot of this is learning just to to be able to say, "Ah, I'm getting a lesson right now. This is a this is a moral lesson on how I ought to treat others, how I ought to behave, how human life ought to work." That sort of thing. I think that's really well, let important me give, too. Let me give you a funny example, though. So um, the other day, I was at the hardware store buying chicken feed, and the gal who was checking, you know, at the cash register, she's like, "What?" And she's like, "Wait a second. She's like, look at this email I just got from the company. She's like, "Do you think HR would send an email like this?" And she's like, "I don't think this is, you know, so it, like it's a fishing thing, right? Like with a P, fishing mm-hmm. thing. Sure. Um, and and sure. so we're." So what's going on there? You're looking at something that is purporting to be something else that's trying. I mean, so this is, I guess, so that if you can't discern, you get scammed. That's the, that's the Mm -hmm. summary of where I want to go here. Basically is to say, if you can't make these critical distinctions of like, this is real and this isn't, um, it does hurt in the long run. So it's like, okay, when I was a kid, one of our favorite things to do in the summer was to soak a softball in diesel fuel especially like the old ones that had leather skins and a yeah. cork core. And then we sure. would light them on fire and play softball at night. Um, and there were some very strict rules. And I'm not saying you should do this because it's dangerous in so many levels, like swinging a bat with diesel fuel in your hands in the dark and all sorts of other fire hazards that are associated here. I cannot condone this. I can say it was a, a phenomenal amount of fun, but there were a lot of ways for that to go wrong in a hurry. Like the dangers were evident mm-hmm and immediate but you can mess yourself up just as fast digitally now by clicking on the wrong thing sending money to the wrong thing um Mm -hmm. and so for whatever i I guess what i want us to be careful with is on one hand we're saying hey in the real world you like you smash your thumb and you bleed and it hurts and, and like that's obvious that is not to minimize the very real tangible physical damage that you can do and perhaps are doing right now to your life because of your inability to discern what mm-hmm. we're consuming, what we're consuming digitally. So it's, I think we're being clear to this is it's not like saying one form of pain is worse than the other. Just one is more obvious to us and more immediate, but real damage in the real world, what we do digitally isn't fake. Even, even if it's entertainment yes. and it's not true, it's not fake. So it's I'm, I'm as real as no, no, no help, that's help good. Me pl- that's, help me parse that out. Right. No, the damage you do is as real as the hammer coming down on your thumb. The, you just aren't immediately bleeding visibly, but the damage is there. So, you know, the best way to illustrate this nation, Nathan is to point to a more extreme example. And this actually isn't really even an extreme example because if we look at the numbers, and the billions and billions of dollars that this industry rakes in, we can point to pornography here. Mm-hmm. All right, so massively consumed. Pornography is presenting a vision of the good life as well. It's really strange to put it in those, those terms, isn't it? But it's a picture of the good life as pure self-indulgence and also self-indulgence that depends entirely on the objectification of another human being. Now, there are a few things more harmful, more dangerous. I mean, 
this is this is capital D dangerous. I mean, without going into too much detail, you know, the FBI actually have pornographic materials in a they have a special way of categorizing it. So I'm drawing my information here from one of my favorite books, my favorite nonfiction modern books. It's a book called Forbidden Knowledge. The subtitle is From Pro- Prometheus to Pornography. The book, the, the question that book is asking is, are there things we ought not to know? The guy who wrote it was not a Christian, but deeply influenced by Christianity and its heritage. He begins, of course, in the Garden of you Eden. You probably ought not to know that it's fun to play with the softball soaked in diesel fuel. That's probably something you ought not to know. But <laughs> yes, I don't know if yes. that made it in the book. <laughs> so, but yeah, yeah, that that might be in there as a stray example. He he has a whole section in there on the Marquis de Sade, and he has a whole section on pornography as well. And he talks a little bit about some of the legal categorization behind the scenes because of the very clear correlation between excessive pornography consumption and aberrant social behavior. I mean, it's real. The connection is absolutely real. I'm not saying everybody who looks at porn is, is a serial killer. Many serial killers, actually, actually, by the way, that's a that's a trend. If you look at their lives, hmm. do have and do consume. My point here is that the warping that happens with that to your mind and to your expectations of of how you look at another person made in the in the image of God, all of the consequences of, of that are very very dramatic, and there are measurable results from it. Now we can see how it affects relationships. We can also see for a while there was a lot of attention being paid, and still there is for younger people are having less and less sex. And everybody, why why are they having sex? Well, the answer is actually a lot of social critics are saying the answer is patently obvious here it's pornography and so you have now a severing of real connection with human beings wendell berry writes very well about this this too as well not directly but he he has he'll he'll stray into this territory in some of his essays and talk about the way you completely divorce again love making from what you know you divorce it completely from its human connection and make it something just for itself but my point here is that the consequences here are very drastic and they're very real. Every bit as real as a hammer falling down on your thumb or a saw going across your skin. So we, we, yeah, there, there are, we have to learn to live well, to live discerningly, or we will be hoodwinked. We will be misled. We will be deceived, but we'll also, we'll be hurting ourselves and we'll be hurting others as well. Mm-hmm. So it is a, I mean, again, the word I want to call to call to mind here is vigilance, not paranoia, not suspicion, not terror, not fear, but vigilance. We need to be aware of our surroundings, aware of the world that we're in and aware of the fact that we're not in neutral territory. You know, one other thing we should throw in here that's been helpful. um, I was just going through a whole list of memories of stupid stuff that my brothers and I did that pain was not a deterrent for. Um, And you're like, well, let's try that again. Um, stupid things I did with my brother by name. Yeah, that, that's gonna be a whole <laughs> with my brother's <laughs> book right there. Um, and they we're really, really creative. But you know, like if you're trying to discern and make a decision about something, there are very few situations where well, in a lot of situations, there's somebody who has direct experience doing that. So it, the the great thing about discernment in Christian community is that you aren't on your own for this. I mean, ask somebody. Right. Say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. You know, and that's a um, Mm -hmm. a huge value if you 
if you don't have that in your life, you're far more susceptible. It's like the the gal at the at the counter. Like, hey, do you think this email looks legit? Um, you're, you're asking somebody else. I, I don't really know her. She <laughs> yeah. just, I mean, and if she thought that I look trustworthy, the answer to that question says something about her discernment. But I'm just saying, turn to another human <laughs> who has put their fingers in the wrong place at mm-hmm. the wrong time and say, you know what? I don't want to adjust my lawnmower blades while the engine's running. You know, um, it's that kind of thing. Or you yes, don't want well, to watch this the or word download community this is or a- click this. Yeah. Well, the word community is apt here. So I don't want to give the impression, by the way, that I think that only, you know, shop class or woodworking will instill this knowledge in you. So I'll draw, you know, drawing on my from my field of experience here. I learned very quickly when I was when I was when I play my instrument and I'm, you know, fiddling around writing some songs. I have all sorts of ideas that I think are really great, really powerful, really intense. When I started playing in a band, I learned very quickly how most of the songs, songs and quotes I was writing sounded horrible. And all it took was my guitar player looking at me and just laughing, saying, are you serious with that lyric? Are you serious with that riff? So that's a version of the whole shop class thing. Other people are helping you. So same thing with writing, by the way. A good deal of what I do involves writing. And I'll, I mean, there's a pretty good litmus test. If I think I've written something and I'm like, this is really good. It's pretty good chance that as soon as an editor looks at it, they'll they'll say, wait, you know what? This is actually a little bit far-fetched right here. This is by no means clear. I think you might want to consider just cutting this whole section altogether. <laughs> and again, that's an example of community coming to, but also helping you to understand the world and to understand, and, you know, to, to basically keep your, your brain in check and keep your, keep you practical, keep you tied to the world. Those kinds of exercises are really, now it's interesting. A lot of editors these days will tell you the fierce, the, the, the ramped up resistance these days that they get to their edits. I've talked to, I've fr- I'm friends with a lot of people who are professional mm-hmm. editors and they've all said, so in my, an editor is doing you a great service. A good editor is saving you from looking like a fool in front of everybody else. So, I mean, you should be, be very grateful to your editor if you're right, or if you're a writer, but what increasingly they're dealing with, with younger writers is how dare you, this is my vision. And this is my, I'm, I'm a beautiful little snowflake and everything I've written is completely, totally unique. How dare you? I'm just going to go find, I'm going to find another opinion and they're unwilling to grow and learn. And they may have some real talent, I would but imagine plenty of people have a lot of talent. Unless you learn, you're not going to get very far. <laughs> It'd be interesting to hear. I would imagine that that's going on in the medical world as well. <laughs> that that, yeah, that the doctor gives it you seems advice. To be you a, it seems to be but, a pretty right a problem so, across the board. Yeah. Let's tie a bow on this thing here, Cameron. So what do we say? Yep. That discernment requires the ability to decide this, not this, and to have a penetrating insight into something. And to distinguish not only what is, will hurt you, because there are a lot of things that won't hurt you that aren't any good for you. So, but what sure. is, is truly good and wholesome? And to be able to, to make that distinction requires a certain set of skills that we will continue to have to develop and teach other people to develop in this mm-hmm. world in order to live well. And that one of the gifts, if you're not sure, is to find somebody who is wiser or has more experience in that category and look to them uh, and see the value of Christian community as sort of a, a buffer zone around helping us decide what's true and what isn't, what's in the real world, what's worth worrying about, where are the lines of danger really at, where can the true adventure come in, and where are the pitfalls that we're prone to because we think of our entertainment only as entertainment 
and not as catechesis and an educational thing that's happening and shaping and forming us. So I like the distinction. Um, we are people who, as Christians, have a robust anthropology that sees the value of the physical created world and its goodness and recognize that we're spiritually and we're to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so all parts of who we are are at play here, and all of them require discernment, and that's part of the beauty and the fun that it is to be a human. So I hope that you uh, store Cameron's wise words in the back of your mind, forget everything dangerous that I might have tempted you to consider trying, and um, make good decisions (laughs) go on from there. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.